Hello everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Gaming in the Wild, a video games podcast about games from the artistic, creative side of the tracks, from indie to AAA. My name's John, I'm your host. I am recording on a sunny Saturday morning out in Reykjavik, Iceland. Um, the sun is not up for very long at the moment, but today we have a really blue sky. Um, and even at noon, or just before noon as it is now, there is pink light just strafing across the rooftops right outside of my window. Uh, I can see snowy mountains in the distance. It's quite a beautiful day. And it's been a big week in the world of video games. We had the Game Awards 2024, uh, the Keeleys as some people like to call them, um, an awards show that is largely focused around, um, for some reason, trailers. Um, I'm not sure that it is really an awards show. They just zip through a lot of the awards, you know what I mean? They rush the winners on and off stage or don't even let them on stage at all. Um, some footage leaked this week of luminaries of video games like Neil Druckmann and Inuma from Nintendo uh, being rushed off stage with a giant screen saying, please wrap it up, as soon as they had started giving their acceptance speeches. It was quite obnoxious, actually. But some awards were handed out. Uh, Baldur's Gate 3 did very, very well. It won the Game of the Year and four other awards. Alan Wake 3 got a couple. It got um, three awards, including Best Direction, Best Narrative. It was a good night for Nintendo. Um, Zelda won Action Adventure. It could be seen as a low haul for Zelda. When that game came out, I think everyone thought it was just going to sweep everything. And it's kind of been forgotten a little bit in uh, the, the, the scale of releases that we've seen this year. But it did win Best Action Adventure. Pikmin 4 won Best Strategy. Mario Wonder won Best Family Game. Uh, which sounds very fitting, actually. I've heard some people saying good things about the multiplayer and that you can have invincible characters that younger siblings or children can play to play alongside you and that kind of thing. So a really good family game, Mario Wonder. Um, there were some indie games as well. Uh, Chia won Games for Impact. Good little game that. Sea of Stars won Best Indie. Um, but the devs were not allowed on the stage to accept that award. It was just rushed out. Uh, Cocoon won the Best Debut Indie. Um, and Hi-Fi Rush won an award for Sound. Uh, my Games of the Year list is very different to what was at the Game Awards this year. I think there are only two games that were won anything. Um, that are in my my long list this year, so it's going to be a very different one. Um, I hope that you're looking forward to that. That's coming later in the month. Um, but we did get an awful lot of trailers, for better or worse. Um, I understand that it's a commercial event, um, but it is so trailer heavy. It's really, really unbalanced. You do wish that a little more time was spent celebrating games, which is what awards are all about. It is called the Game Awards, um, and so the awards should be the main thing, not the trailers, but for some reason, I'm, I'm guessing financial. Um, Keeley favors trailers. But the good part of that is that we get a load of new game announcements at this time of the year. Um, there's always an awful lot of trailers. There are te tens of trailers. Um, there are commercial breaks with trailers between the trailers. Um, so you'd see an awful lot. And they do, they do blur together after a while. They sure do. And, um, you know, you just run out of enthusiasm for seeing another perfect parry or another mech firing off a bunch of homing missiles or another anime hero running through um, a, a dark world and all of the language that is used in these trailers is so funny and a lot of the game names are terrible you know the rise of whatever the fall of something else it really does become quite a word spaghetti you could put any of these words together and end up with like elder gods the steel of the rising like, that, that could be a game name at the Game Awards. 
We had some fun in the Discord uh, riffing on that and satirising game names this week. But I think that's enough dumping on the Game Awards. We all know what it is. We all know what Jeff Keighley is. Um, and the upside of it is that we get to see a lot of new games, and there were some really exciting ones here. Um, I thought it might be fun to run through the announcements and the trailers that most caught my eye, the things that we have to look forward to. And I actually think that the, the show started uh, with the best trailer of the whole event. It was by Daniel Mullins, the creator of Inscription, um, Gaming in the Wild podcast's Game of the Year a couple of years ago. Um, and he unveiled Pony Island 2, um, a sequel to one of the games he made before Inscription. A really interesting choice. Um, I love that he's hit the big time to the degree where his crazy trailers are now opening the Game Awards um, festivities. It's really cool that Dan Daniel Mullins is, is at that level now since Inscription was such a big hit. Um, and it was a great trailer. I love that it started out with what seems to be a parody of Game Awards type games. It opens with a shot of an aggressively bland and completely empty open worlds um, with that kind of faux spiritual music that is always used in these trailers. Uh, we see a hand come out, it's holding a crystal, it goes up a lift. Um, so, so bland, so funny. I think this is humour. Um, I don't know if it read to everyone as humour, but to me this was Daniel Mullins doing humour. He was like, look, I'm selling out, I'm doing this silly open world thing that you've seen a hundred times. Um, but then what actually happens is it's a fake-out. Um, the hand plugs the crystal into an arcade machine, and then the trailer just promptly goes absolutely bonkers. There is uh, code-breaking, there is digital readouts, there is lo-fi, 2D hack-and-slash graphics, retro-style, like pre-NES computer game graphics. Um, there is a video call with a Chinese man who is apparently a king or something. There is a top-down pixel art RPG section, um, and then it cuts back to that open-world um, and the hands that we saw are now wielding a bow in 3D graphics. Um, I cannot wait to see what Pony Island 2 is. It has a subtitle, Pony Island 2 Panda Circus. Um, first trailer of the night and the best trailer of the night, in my opinion. Um, shortly after that, we got a commercial break between the commercials, our first of the night. Um, these are the games that are just paid to be there. You assume that they are all paid to be there, but I think it's kind of funny that the games media treats these games that don't get an intro as second-class citizens, like they don't deserve to be there somehow, whereas the other ones do. Um, when actually it's just a game that was um, that chose a slightly different advertising pricing tier. Um, so one of the really good games that I thought was interesting was in the commercial break, in the commercials. It was Endfield, a terrible name, um, the first of many good-looking games with bad names of the evening, but it looks really cool. It's like an open-world RPG uh, with a Japanese style to it. It has a near aesthetic, like near automata, with these masked people running around in a, a cool black clothing with um, that, that near style blindfolds. And the aesthetic of it just kind of spoke to me somehow. I don't really know what Enfield is exactly, but it is one of the games that stuck in my mind after, you know, after feasting and sitting through um, 30 different trailers or whatever. Enfield was one of the ones that I remembered that I went and watched again the next day. Um, it's an interesting looking game, so that one's on my radar. Um, right after that, we got Usual June. Uh, this is by Finji, the makers of Chicory, so I will always look at what they are doing. Um, it's a third person action exploration game. It has a cool female protagonist who is talking to ghosts, who is doing combat, um, who is exploring an interesting looking bright environment. It has colourful graphics. Um, 
Fincher are always interesting. I will always watch what Fincher are doing. But I will say that Usual June, um, thinking back on it now, I don't know what the unique selling point of this game is or what its personality is exactly, if you know what I mean. It was a game that looked familiar. It, you could interchangeably um, show it alongside something like Thirsty Suitors, for example, uh, very much in that vein. So hard to tell exactly what it is, but I will keep an eye on Usual June because it's Finji. The next one that was good for me was uh, Big Walk. This is by the developers of Untitled Goose Game uh, from down in Australia. Um, it's a very strange looking game. It really stood out amongst all of the dark, dour, post-FromSoft, post-Elden Ring, sword and mech games. Um, it was just a very colourful, light, silly looking 3D game where you're walking through a world. Um, it looks like a multiplayer game. You're controlling these very simple birds that are just a bunch of circles glued together with a beak on and like uh, googly eyes on them. And it looks like a physics-y game where you walk around, you do uh, bird watching, maybe. Um, you bumble around together, you can sit on each other's shoulders, you explore, you jump around, you find strange stuff. It looks like a sandboxy multiplayer game for four people. But there was a sense of mischief in this one that I thought was quite interesting, and it's great that they're not just doing a sequel to Goose Game, given what a big hit it was. Um, so I will definitely keep an eye on Big Walk, even though I'm not a big multiplayer guy. Um, I'm interested to see what these developers do. Um, one of the, the big whizzy combat trailers that actually did catch my eye uh, was a game called Black Myth Wukong. Um, this was a crazy trailer. Um, it was a whizzy Colossus-type game uh, where you have a protagonist with a sword, you have giant enemies, you have um, lots of Chinese um, religious imagery, I guess. It's based on a Chinese fantasy novel called Journey to the West, which flashed up on the screen, and it looks like a mixture of Alice in Wonderland and Chinese mythology. So lots of those... Um, those masks, those grimacing masks with big noses, big mouths, big teeth, a colossal sense of scale, some sort of animal mask, spirit, cross beings. Um, I just hope that it's not a Souls-like, honestly, because that would kind of rule it out for me. I just don't really like FromSoft's formula, um, so FromSoft spin-offs aren't for me, um, which is always a little bit disappointing when a good-looking game comes out like Lies of P, and I just know that I'm not going to like the gameplay. So I hope that Black Myth Wukong is a combat game that does not lean into the, the from um, grueling difficulty uh, because it was very visually impressive. Okay, five down, five more to go. One of the big surprises of the night for me was actually this Sega trailer. So it was a bit of a silly trailer with two people sitting on a sofa playing a game. There's a citywide power cut. We hear the sonic sound. Um, it's a bit of a mystery what the trailer is, but it's dragging on a little. It's like a pretty poor trailer. But then it flashes into gameplay and we get a really, really fast and furious sequence of gameplay from different games. Um, and we slowly realise that these are classic Sega games that have just been completely redone. Um, it's hard to tell if they are remakes, it's hard to tell if they are sequels, um, but the games shown include Golden Axe, which I remember playing way back when I first picked up a controller almost, um, Shinobi, the ninja game, um, Streets of Rage, with a very different art style to the one that we're used to, um, Crazy Taxi, a version of Crazy Taxi that looks completely updated, um, and the one that I was most excited about was Jet Set Radio. Um, that's a game that I have not actually played um, but I love games with fast, slick traversal. As I'm always saying on this podcast, uh, games like Solar Ash, games like The Pathless, uh, that kind of thing. And Jet Set Radio is often evoked or invoked, rather, in relation to those games that I like. So it's very exciting that Sega is coming back with this new era 
of five classic franchises, um, and it says and more. So um, very interesting. It will be interesting to see if these games are hits. Um, there's a lot of fondness out there for games like Golden Axe, Shinobi, Streets of Rage. People love these games. Um, so that was a really fun announcement. Um, the next one that caught my eye was No Rest for the Wicked. Um, Jeff hilariously introduced this one as supporting small studios. Uh, it turns out it's by Moon Studios, who created Ori and are partially funded or owned by Xbox. Um, so yeah, really going out on a limb with this one, Jeff. Um, but this is an action RPG, so it's very different to what they've made before. It has a really nice painterly art style. Um, I love the characterization on the character faces, really long faces. Um, with a lot of character to them. Uh, we couldn't discern much of the game. It did look like there was some top-down gameplay. Um, it looked like there was some real-time combat with turn-based elements, um, but we didn't see an awful lot of gameplay. Uh, but it is by Moon Studio. They make good games, uh, so no rest for the wicked makes my list. Next up, um, we have Lost Records, a new game from Don't Nod. Um, Don't Nod have been on a huge hot streak lately. Um, they are, of course, the de developers, or at least publishers, I think developers actually, of Life is Strange, the original one. Um, but I've played a whole bunch of Don't Nod games this year. I've played Gerda, I've played Harmony, Fall of Reverie, I've played Jusant, and I, I really enjoyed all of them. Um, to, some, to, to different degrees, but there was a sense of craft in all of them that I really liked. Um, so it's very exciting to see them announce something new. Don't nod or on a hot streak. Uh, this looks related to Life is Strange. It has college vibes. We saw uh, young teen characters jumping around, listening to music. Uh, because it is called Lost Records, we assume that there is going to be a music focus. Um, so maybe it is a return to that original Life is Strange vibe, which is so powerful. Um, there is a reason that Life is Strange is revered in certain circles. It had such a thick interesting vibe to it. Um, so hopefully Lost Records can recapture some of that. The penultimate choice here is another whizzy combat game um, with a bad name. This one is called The First Descendant. Silly name. Please, please, please think of better names. Um, this one was a fast action Colossus battler where we see the protagonist skating along the surface of water between the legs of a giant enemy. Um, it was very, very impressive. It was very cinematic. It had a bleached out gray color palette. Um, something cinematic, something in the art design uh, was striking to me. Hard to know if these will be good or not. You know what I mean? It could be another Forspoken or it could be, you know, a, a proper Colossus-like. Um, so hard to know exactly what the first Descendant is. Um, but you are fighting giant beasts. It looks very fast. It looks very cool. It's a spectacle fighter. I'm at least a little interested in that one. Um, and the last game I've got here that I found to be of interest at the, the Game Awards is Light No Fire. Um, at the very end there, we got Sean Murray on stage, the developer of No Man's Sky, or at least the instigator of it um, at Hello Games. Um, and it turns out that Light No Fire is has been five years in development um, and Sean Murray gave this um, hype speech, basically, saying that it's the first true open world in the sense that it is going to be a planet-sized open world with um, geologically realistic-sized mountains and bodies of water and so forth. Um, that is an impressive-sounding thing to say, but when you actually think about it, um, I guess there is a reason that Hyrule has five biomes that are within like a five minute horse ride of each other because it's more fun that way. So if we have an entire continent that is like uh, Russia, for example, um, 
a continent-sized country um, with snow far to the north and vast steppes in the middle, then is that going to be fun? Is that going to be fun to explore? Uh, we did see that there were flying mounts. We did see that it is massively multiplayer. And surprisingly, um, it's also fantasy, which is a bit of a departure um, from the No Man's Sky developer, which is obviously a science fiction masterpiece in its own right. So I felt that the trailer on this one, I was not as high on it as others. Some people seem very excited about it, but I think the fact that it is basically a large fantasy MMO um, is really not ticking the boxes for me personally. I'm less interested in fantasy than sci-fi. I'm uninterested in MMOs. Um, so hard to know what this is. There was some building that we saw. There was some combat that we saw. Um, strong Valheim vibes, I would say. But interesting to see at least. So Sean Murray is back with the next big project after No Man's Sky. And it is Light No Fire. So that's the end of the little Game Awards block here. Um, and I'm going to get on and talk about three different games today that I've actually played. I'm going to talk a little bit about Inkles, A Highland Song, um, which I've been playing and having some interesting conversations with people about. Um, it's proving a little controversial with the fans, I would say. Um, I'm going to talk also about Avatar Frontiers of Pandora, the new Avatar game from Ubisoft and Massive that has just come out. Um, on Ubisoft Plus and all of the consoles. I played a little bit of that. And I'm going to talk about Backpack Hero as well. So this is a little roundup episode of three games that I've been playing, and I'm excited to share my thoughts about them with you. But before we get to that, please do allow me to say this is a Patreon-supported show. Um, so whether you are a long-time listener who's been listening to Gaming in the Wild for weeks or months or years even, or whether you're someone who has just found the show for the first time today, if you like what you're hearing, you're welcome to come and join the show's community. We have a patron-only Discord server, which is full of people chatting about games all day long. It's a very friendly corner of the internet. Uh, patrons also get 11 extra episodes, and I'm planning to record another one over the holidays. So that's 12 patron-only episodes that you can get access to, um, and some other fun rewards too. Um, and some encouragement for me, and it helps to upgrade equipment and to cover the costs of the podcast. Um, so you're welcome to support this podcast. It's patreon.com slash gaminginthewild if you would like to do so. There is a link in the description. Um, and I will say as well that it's okay if people like the show and don't want to chip in financially. You can also leave ratings for it if you want to help boost this podcast and help more people find it. Spotify ratings are really handy. So if you're listening on Spotify, please drop a rating on the show. If you're listening on Apple, you can drop a star rating and even a review if you're feeling generous. Um, so thanks very much to everyone who is a patron. Thanks to everyone who leaves star ratings and reviews. Thanks to everyone who retweets the show and shares it with friends. It all helps. Um, and it makes me feel good about doing the show. So I appreciate you all, and thanks for listening. And with all of that said, let's move on to the first of three games in this uh, this bumper episode. And um, the first game I'm going to talk about is Inkles, A Highland Song. So I'm a big fan of Inkle. I've talked about them before. Um, they made Heaven's Vault, a game that I really like. They made Overboard, a game that I enjoyed too. They are the makers of the Inkle engine. Um, they have published books. They are narrative heavy. They are a literary game making studio. They made uh, 80 Days based on the Jules Verne novel. Um, they are just a good developer. They are 
smart. It's an intelligent game studio. Um, and a Highland song is them turning their hand to something they've never done before. It is a narrative platform game, which is just such an interesting turn for them. But of course, it is an Inkle game too, and so it is not in any way a traditional platformer. It's actually an interesting game that mashes together a few different elements. It has an endurance system, it uses cartography, um, it uses story. It's set in the Scottish Highlands and it has a very deep Scottish Gaelic feeling to the whole thing. Um, the accents, the voice acting, the beautiful artwork that's very, very, very striking with this purple, heathery texture on the mountains, the churning skies, the constant rain, the wildness, the wind. It really captures Scotland in a really interesting way. Um, and in this game, you play as Moira, um, a young girl who runs away from home. Um, she lives in a cottage with her mum in the desolate highlands of Scotland, um, the remote highlands. Um, she is going to visit her uncle. Her uncle has sent her a letter. Um, he lives in a lighthouse. And she doesn't know how to get there, but she's done with living at home. She needs to go and see her uncle. And so she sets out on a big adventure. And I, I can't stress enough just how lovely the presentation of this game really is. It is 2D. Um, you run along um, a 2D environment. There are branching paths in the 2D. So sometimes there will be a path that leads down to water level. Sometimes there will be an incline that leads up towards a hilltop or even a mountain peak. Um, sometimes they intersect in different ways. So what you end up with is a very vertical uh, 2D level with branching paths. Sometimes you will be backtracking. Sometimes you will go into the world. So if you can discover the way out of the, the plane that you are on, the mountain that you're exploring or the beach or whatever, sometimes you'll find a transfer point, like a pathway that will let you go into the land. And you see, you see that area that you've just explored fly through the screen, through the camera, and you zoom into another one. Um, and that's how you make progress in this game. Um, you are skipping through these different levels uh, by finding... Um, path points to move on to the next one and to get closer to the lighthouse, which you can see sometimes far in the distance. You're trying to get there before Beltane. Um, you have five in-game days to do it. Um, if you run out of time, Moira will comment on that, uh, but you can play on. As always, Inkle have allowed for different outcomes, every outcome, um, and different playthroughs. So you could play this game again and again and again. You could go in different ways. You can have different experiences. There are NPCs you will meet along the way. Some of them like just a drunk lying in a bush that you can interact with in different ways. If you have an object, you can give it to someone. You can try and use objects in different scenarios. You'll find keys. You'll find buildings that are locked. Maybe you have the key. Maybe you don't. You will find maps um, and so you're running through this lovely painterly rendition of uh, the Scottish Highlands as Moira. You are trying to go further and further into the map um, and find your way to the lighthouse. There are also some rhythm sections where you will find a deer grazing in a field. Um, if you run behind the deer and use the B button to sprint, um, Scottish music starts playing, like a Highland jig basically. And a rhythm game section comes up where you have to just hit either X or Y as Moira runs over like a coloured spot on the ground, she'll do a little jump, she'll do a little whoop, and um, you go very quickly. It's a way of letting you move across the map quickly between peaks, between mountains, that kind of thing. If you miss the beat too much, Moira will trip and fall. Um, the, the rhythm game series ends, but it's very forgiving. If you start sprinting again, you can just pick up right where you left off. 
And the other main spoke of the gameplay, I'd say, is that you find collectible maps all around the place. Um, sometimes there are little points of interest on the ground, in a bush, um, in a post box, you know, just lying around on a fence post, something pinned to a fence post. If you search them, more often than not, it's a map that goes into your notebook. You look at the maps, they are illustrations of the area. Sometimes they are tourist flyers, sometimes they are posters, sometimes they are ordnance survey maps. Sometimes it's just a photograph with a pencil mark on it. Um, and you have to go into map mode. The camera zooms out. You have to identify the marked spot on the map, uh, put a pin on it. When you find the right spot, Moira will cry out and go, yay, I found it. And then that's a point that you can use to travel through to the next area of the game. So those are all the main spokes of the gameplay. There is the running, the exploring, uh, collecting stuff, maps, rhythm game. Um, an endurance system where you have to stop and wait sometimes for Moira to catch her breath. And that's what you're doing in the game, you're just trying to get to the lighthouse. And that's all of the mechanics explained, and I think it's time for a little bit of analysis now. And this game I was expecting to like. I like Inkle, I love the trailer, um, I was really into the, the vibe of the whole thing, I like the setting. Um, but I actually had a very hard time with this game. Um, so let's go through why. First of all, the five-day time limit. This is harsh. Um, as you are playing the game, it encourages exploring and collecting uh, things from all corners of this world. The maps are really useful when you find them. There are secrets to find. There are nooks and crannies and caves. Um, but having a five-day time limit actually actively discourages you from doing that. Um, and so this is the first instance of two systems of the game fighting each other. Uh, one system is a time limit that makes you want to go fast, but to go fast, you're going to need the maps, um, and that makes you go slow. So straight away, we have some player confusion, I would say, about how to play this game. Um, and this turns into a running theme. I would say that the game is also under-tutorialized. Um, you get a very, very basic tutorial at the start, which shows you how to use maps to pin locations and find ways forward. Um, but it's, it doesn't teach you the whole thing. It does show you how to use a map, but it turns out that if you scale mountains all the way to the top and then do a kind of guessing game to try and correctly identify its name, uh, you can get an additional map that will open another way forward. I did not grok that for quite a few hours um, and so found myself lost. Um, this is one of many ways that you can get lost in this game. Um, sometimes you have maps that do not relate to the area that you are in, so you spend ages zooming in and out trying to look for the right spot. Sometimes the maps are a little bit too abstract, and so it's just quite hard to identify um, what they are trying to tell you. Uh, placing pins is very picky, so you can think that you have the right spot and be clicking again and again and again, zooming in, zooming out, looking for the right spot. Eventually, you might get that little pop um, and the path will open, but it's not painless. It's actually quite painful sometimes. Um, and so I often found myself lacking maps, lacking knowledge, um, lacking a sense of what I should be doing. Um, and I did play this very actively. You know, I've got six hours in the game. I had three two-hour sessions where I sat down with full focus and tried to play it and found myself very confused. Um, like, I found myself missing things that I needed to progress and then looping back, uh, finding myself in the same place again and again and again because I've gone over a mountain, under a cave, just come out back at the start. I'm just wasting time, burning time. Um... And then little things start to get on your nerves as you become irritated, like the endurance system, having to stop and just wait for three seconds really, really regularly for Moira to um, catch her breath 
is is not fun, especially when things aren't going well. Um, so the two runs that I did in this game, I missed Beltane both times. I felt that the game was fighting me. I felt that the, the maps and the time limit um, and the exploration and the platforming just don't all hang together. There is something awkward about the way that all of these elements are fitting together that do, did not come across to me to the player. Um, so I did not actually enjoy playing this game, but I can see that it is full of quality. Um, and so I'm going to keep playing it. This is not a final review. This is just my thoughts on where I'm at with the Highland Song. Um, I think it has problems, but I think it has deep quality. Um, I love the Scottish setting. I love the writing. I love the visuals, the weather, the feel. Um, and I love the idea of trying to get to the lighthouse. It's just the actual getting there that's proving to be a problem. Uh, but because it is a game that has quality, because it is a studio that has pedigree, and because I just want to see the end of the story, I'm going to give it a little break. I'm going to come back to it across the Christmas holidays, and I'm going to try and learn this game and find my way to that lighthouse. I need to see what happens when you get there. So a mixed review on that one. It's, it's interesting, but it's a bit loose. It's a bit messy somehow. But I do want to play it and see if I can crack it. Um, this might be the only time I talk about it. We'll see how I get on, but I'm going to try and play it. I'm going to try and circle back to it again. So that's where I'm at right now with Inkle's A Highland Song. I know that I always say at the start of this podcast that it's about games from the artistic and creative side of the tracks. Um, that started out as as more of an MO for this podcast. I think over time, as my interests have broadened out, I've, I've really started using that quite loosely because I think all games contain artistic material. They all contain visuals, music, writing, interactivity, level design, all kinds of characterization, voice acting. They are intrinsically a creative medium, um, but there are definitely games that are on each side of the scale when it comes to artistic intention. You could say that a Highland Song is a pretty artistic game. It has lofty goals. It's trying to give you something. It's trying to give you a feeling. Um, and the next game that I'm going to talk about today comes in stark contrast to that. It is a, a commercial game. Um, I ended up playing this one out of curiosity. It is Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. Um, I saw this game coming down the pipes, saw some tweets about it, and I have an active Ubisoft Plus subscription at the moment, which I got to play The Crew and to play AC Mirage earlier this year. This is when you pay Ubisoft £15 a month, and you get access to basically all of their games, including the new releases. Um, I have had it for two months, I've since cancelled it, um, which maybe foreshadows what I think of Avatar uh, Frontiers of Pandora. Um, but I would say that for that £30, I got to play some Mirage, I got to play some The Crew Motorfest, and I got to play some Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. If I had bought all those games, I'd be on £170. Um, so I got to sample them all for 30 which feels kind of fine to me, honestly. I got to catch hype without emptying my bank account. Um, but what is this game? So Avatar Frontiers of Pandora, it is, of course, based on the, the James Cameron-directed animated film blockbuster what would you call it? Spectacle, I suppose. Some of the biggest grossing movies ever made. Um, they are about blue alien people versus humans on a faraway planet. Um, 
I am not steeped in the lore of Avatar, by the way, if you couldn't tell. Uh, but as for the game, it is a first-person game. Uh, we run around, we talk to people, we get quests, we have an open world to explore, although it does begin quite linear. Um, so it's a first-world exploration game with combat, etc., and Ubisoft gameplay based on the Avatar movies. Um, it has a, a meta score of 73. It's been kind of roundly panned, actually. Um, it's on next-gen conversations and Windows. Um, NME gave it a 6 out of 10, and they nailed it by saying Frontiers of Pandora is a gorgeous realization of the Avatar franchise, but uncreative open-world game mechanics and a dull story hold back the game's potential. Um, and I have to agree with that. So I played um, quite a few hours of this game, actually. I think I was around four or five hours. Um, and it makes a good first impression. It has a cinematic intro that is a little bit overlong that establishes your character as uh, one of these Avatar dudes. Um, you end up, you're in human captivity at the beginning. Uh, long story short, you end up on the planet of Pandora, free and as part of a, an uprising against the local human baddies. Um, so there's a little bit of a prison escape sequence before you step out into the wilds of Pandora. Um, and the step out moment, as they call it, was really, really cool because um, you've been in this dark, metallic, human structure. Something that I really liked was that these uh, these blue creatures, I don't know what they're called, sorry, um, are very, very tall. They're much taller than people, um, like, you know, plus 50 or a plus 100% on human height. And so you have to get down and duck to get through human-sized doorways in this uh, military prison uh, before stepping out finally into this absolutely eye-popping planet um, with beautiful vegetation everywhere, uh, with tall trees all around you, with animals and birdsong, eye-popping colours, alien vegetation, gushing waterfalls, dense foliage. It looked absolutely beautiful. I was so glad to have um, to at least seen that part of the game. It, it was a nice moment, and I'm glad that I had it, but I will say that the wonder uh, quickly fades as the gameplay starts to announce itself. Um, you start getting some missions. Um, an, an injured colleague tells you to go and fetch a plant to heal. It's just a tutorialized fetch quest. You go get the plant. You have to kill a couple guys with a bow, and back you go. The next mission is to kill some stuff. Um, the next mission after that is to attack a base and to take it out. Um, and all of these small missions that are introducing the game, I had a sinking feeling as I was playing them. I was like, this is going to be the first of many of all of these mission types. There are going to be many, many times when I have to attack a base. I have to stealth past enemies or take them out. I have to take out the power generator, uh, get a nice cutscene, um, and then move on and do it again and again and again and again. And I could just see it coming from a mile away. Um, there is a witch ascent mission as well. We have to scan for clues, uh, scan for footprints, follow the footprints. I found some footprints. I followed them up a mountain, up a parkour trail for about five minutes. Uh, I got to the top where there was clearly supposed to be something, but nothing triggered. Um, so I had to climb all the way back down to the bottom because I hadn't scanned the clues right or something my mind had understood what the clues were there for and i had skipped a step of in-game bureaucracy um, you have to scan the pod then the footprints then the pod again um, and then suddenly your character says oh i think they've gone up the mountain i can follow their scent i had just skipped all of that stuff and i had just gone and completed the quest but i wasn't allowed to actually complete it it was really really annoying i hate it when that happens it was the bane of alan wake too like thinking ahead of a puzzle 
um, and moving on and then realizing that you have to go back and do some busy work in order for the game to allow you to solve the puzzle that you have solved. Just so tedious. Um, So that kind of killed the game for me a little bit, I think. I was very impressed with the look of Pandora. I was very impressed with the, the cinematic opening. But I just got a sense in the next two hours that the gameplay was all pretty basic. The combat doesn't feel particularly great. The stealth doesn't feel particularly great. Base attacks feel tedious, even when it's the first one. That is not a good sign. And then these Witcher Sense missions, I felt were just clunky and didactic. And I thought, this is going to be like 20 plus hours of this gameplay. Um, So am I invested enough in this Avatar game, in this storyline, which is not going to be good, I think, you know, um, to actually play through the game? And I just decided to bail. Um, it's It's an upside of not having spent $60, $70 on the game is that I can just bail, you know what I mean? I can just uninstall it and move on to the next game, and I don't feel like I have to get my money's worth. So that's what I did. Um, And I would say that this is um, a classic Ubisoft problem. You know, they make good games sometimes, like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I think, was the last one that I played and really liked. Maybe Immortals Phoenix Rising was quite good. It had good moments in it. Um, But I've bounced off so many of their games. Um, There is a cookie-cutter style. There is a sense of deep, um, profound boredom that you get playing these games because you've seen it before. You know what is coming. You know what you're supposed to be doing. It's repetitive. It feels like you are on a treadmill just churning through the gameplay of these games. There is no inspiration. There is no creativity um, there is no ideas here. And so whilst I think that Ubisoft make competent games, um, they are largely bug-free. They have systems that have been proven to to appeal to a large player base. They sell well. They are formulaic, and the formula sells, and therefore the formula continues. Um, but now Ubisoft have gotten their hands on the keys to the kingdom of Hollywood. They have Avatar, one of the biggest film franchises in the world. Um, and they've made just another Ubisoft game. It's depressing. Um, I wish that it was someone else. I do think about Respawn and their brilliant Jedi Survivor, um, which really took the Star Wars uh, universe and made it into something special. It made it into a really special game experience. It swung big. Um, It swung for the fences, and it it landed. The game was great. Um, And here we have Ubisoft just churning one out, you know. Um, I'm sure it will sell well, but it made me sad. It made me worry about the, the forthcoming Star Wars Outlaws game because it's the same team. So they've created this joyless, um, cookie-cutter, resource-grinding, open-world Far Cry thing with a, an Avatar skin on it. They're selling it as an Avatar game, and that's just not very inspiring. It's, it's sad, um, and I really, really hope that Star Wars Outlaws doesn't turn out to be another game that just lacks personality. As I was playing it, I felt like I was witnessing the competent execution of some business partnership rather than a game that anyone actually wanted to make. Um, And that is just a a real big indictment um, on this game and on Ubisoft's way of making games. They make viable products, they sell well, but I don't think that they really make games that have a heart. Um, And that's just a, a sad thing, really. But that's the end of my Ubisoft rant. If you, like me, do catch hype for new games, I do recommend... Um, £15 for a month of Ubisoft Plus 
You can try out Mirage, you can try out The Crew, you can try out Valhalla, you can try out Avatar. You don't have to put £70 down for any of them. So you can dip into all of those expensive games uh, and make your own mind up. It is a great way to scratch the itch when you've caught hype for an Ubisoft game that you know that you're probably not going to be all in on. Um, and now on to the final game of the episode, a little pixel art indie game called Backpack Hero. So the last game of the episode is Backpack Hero. This is a fun little pixel art indie game developed by Jasper, aka solo developer Jasper Cole. It is out on the Switch, the PC and Mac. Uh, PlayStation and Xbox versions are in development. Um, and this one is one of those games that has my favorite kind of indie game story. It started as a game jam game. So it was sketched out speculatively at a game jam. There was something there, there was some magic in the prototype. Um, and so it went into production. Uh, Jasper Cole took it to Kickstarter with a goal of 20,000 US dollars and raised 223 US dollars. Um, I love that kind of story. I love it when an idea just works out, people respond to it, um, and the public money allows the developer to take the idea all the way. Um, something that does tend to happen with these games, though, um, usually I would say, unless they are picked up by a publisher, is that because they are one-person operations, because they are extremely indie developers, they tend not to have much marketing going on around them. They've been funded in a different way. Like, they go to market differently, you know what I mean? And so this one has not had a big publicity effort. It has been a word-of-mouth game. Um, so it only has four reviews on Metacritic. Um, it has an 80. Um, a couple of the reviews, one of the high ones, is from the sixth axis who said that the meta progression is satisfying and it's everything a good roguelike should be uh, the lowest one was a six from rp gamer who liked the mechanics but they didn't like the story um i think i'd probably come down between those two reviews on this one i'd give this one probably a seven but as for what the game actually is it's a pixel art adventure it's top down most of the time although it has turn-based side-on combat like slay the spire um, so imagine like a bit of a, a, a primitive looking pixely old school Zelda-y top-down village builder type thing um, and then you go into dungeons, you get a little overworld map of the dungeon, an underworld map rather, with different chambers, um, you go and pick stuff up, you have turn-based combat bouts where you use your weapons and synergies and so forth and try and get as far as you can in the run. Um, so it's a little bit like one of those mashup games, like Cult of the Lamb has a village builder and then a dungeon crawler. Uh, Moonlighter has a shop and a dungeon crawler, so it's two forms of gameplay smushed together. I kind of like games that do that. Um, and in, in this game you play as Purse, who is a, a young rat who is dungeon diving against the advice of their father, looking for their lost mother. They live in a ruined village and there is a massive sprawling dungeon below the village where mysterious things happen, where people go missing. Uh, Purse's mother has gone missing, and so Purse is trying to delve ever further into the dungeon. Um, and the dungeon part is, um, I would say, heavily Slay the Spire inspired. It is a roguelike, so you are going to look at a little map. You're going to have character encounters, select the room you want to go to, treasure rooms, pickups, and then combat bouts. 
um, turn-based combat where you will play your energy points to attack or defend, where you can see the damage that is coming in so you know how many block points you have to get. It's like a little bit of mental arithmetic, trying to deal out the most damage, trying to make sure that you block all of the incoming damage and hopefully get through it. Um, you will work on your build, you will get rewards for those combat bouts, um, and you'll get more powerful until you eventually either triumph or just hit a wall. Um, and you will do both. It's a roguelike, so you're meant to fail. You're meant to grow. Um, it has meta progression. So I guess formally it would be a roguelite, although I don't think that is much of an interesting distinction these days. Um, but you do get some carryover um, and you get more powerful. And when you build stuff back at the village, um, you will get more powerful in your next run. Uh, new weapons will unlock, new boons will unlock, all of that kind of thing. So it is all tied together. Um, but the thing that sets this game apart in the combat, um, and the reason it is called Backpack Hero, is that it has an inventory management aspect that is really interesting too. Um, any weapons or items or shields or armor or potions or throwing stars that you find have to be organized into your backpack before you can use them. It starts off as a small 3x3 three three grid that can hold a sword, which is 3x1. It can hold a shield, which is 2x2. Two and that leaves you with two little spaces, one for a potion maybe, or a food item. Um, and as you move through the game, you will power up. The, back, the backpack size will grow. Um, so it's a little bit like the Resident Evil inventory, basically. Um, but it does grow when you level up. You can choose which directions you want to grow in. Um, and you get more and more weapons and potions and items to pack into your backpack. Um, and the interesting thing about them is that um, synergies will start to occur. So for example, you might get a helmet. Um, if an item floats, it can only be at the top of your inventory. So it has to be at the top. Um, if the helmet is next to a shield, then maybe the shield will get plus one block. So you start having to puzzle things together. You might find a whetstone that can, if you play it, add a damage point to every weapon that is touching. So you really want to surround that whetstone with weapons. So you might have a sword on the left, um, a, a throwing star below it, um, like a kunai a dagger to the right. And when you play that whetstone, you're actually powering up all of those weapons if you've arranged your backpack correctly. Um, and that is a really fun element of this game. It sets it apart from other roguelikes. It makes the combat more engaging, that you are building your loadout as you go. You get many, many, many opportunities to rebalance, to repack, to change weapons, to upgrade. You're choosing all the time. There's lots and lots of choice. Like, do I want this poison potion that affects everyone? Or do I want this spear that I can use to pierce one person a lot? Um, so you're trying to get a build that will get you through the combat. Um, and it starts off pretty basic. It's like a three levels with various combat encounters on each one. And then you finish, you go back to the village. Um, and that's just how it goes. There's a little bit of story progression. Sometimes when you go back, your dad will want to talk to you and he'll tell you little nuggets about your mom. After a while, after a few runs, um, you will get access to a key that will let you go deeper into the dungeon. So you do your three levels as usual, and then you open a door, and you can go into a new area and keep going down. Uh, the difficulty ramps quite hard, though, um, so you're going to end up grinding a little bit in this game. And that's where my first criticism of this game comes in, because um, I really do like the game. But I think that in roguelikes, it's very, very important to get not just an addictive gameplay loop with uh, resources, with building, with growing, with getting stronger, with powering up, with variety, new weapons, new monsters to fight, not just all of that stuff, 
But the way that the progression unfolds is live or die, I would say, for a good roguelike. Um, more often than not, it is the uh, the thing that will tank a roguelike for me. Um, I think about games like Scourgebringer or Have a Nice Death, uh, where I felt that I was playing as well as I could and still failing um, because um, the game was asking me to grind up levels um, and just keep playing and playing and playing, um, and that I wanted the progression to be faster. Um, that is a, a common problem in roguelikes, and I think it is a problem here. Um, I think that Backpack Hero um, kind of expects you to be in love with runs, uh, like really in love with runs, and to just do them for the pleasure. Um, and then you will get these little rewards that you can like, like you might get a, a crystal at the end of a run. There's a crystal merchant guy, and if you give him three, then you will unlock something that is potentially useful. So that's three runs to unlock one thing. Um, the game just seems to think that you will you will enjoy that. You'll be like, hell yeah, I want those three crystals to unlock this different kind of dagger. To me, not not so much, to be honest. Like, it is fun, for sure. It is nice to have on a side screen. But I felt within, I would say, the five or six hours that I played... I felt that I got to a point where the grind was starting to annoy me just a little bit. I was starting to feel a little stifled. I wanted the story to progress faster than it was. Um, and even though every time you go back to the village, new people arrive, they'll give you new quests. They'll give you new nuggets of info. Um, there is a lot going on to try and keep it fresh. Even with all of that said, like what that actually means in gameplay terms is not that interesting, sadly. So you might open a blacksmith... Um, and then you have to grind for resources in dungeons um, and then bring them back. After a successful run, you plug them in and then you get a weapon that is just a little bit different to the ones that are currently available that might occur in a dungeon. It doesn't feel worthwhile. It feels like grind. So whilst I think that Backpack Hero gets a lot right, I think that it's charming. Um, I think that the the backpack system is ingenious. Um, I like that there is a village builder in there. Um, I would say that it has a fatal flaw, and that is that the grind is real in this game, um, and that it revealed itself perhaps too quickly to me. Um, if you compare it to Slay the Spire, Slay the Spire has such deep combat, um, and every run you will end up with such vastly different builds um, that it's just always fresh. I would say the same is true of Hades. There is a vast variety of builds that can and will occur from run to run, um, and the game will always feel different. And even though you are grinding, in effect, um, you are run after run after run, you're working towards goals, the gameplay is just so good that you don't mind it because it, it really does have that pleasure. Uh, the run after run pleasure is a reward in itself. Backpack Hero does not quite get there. Um, I felt like I had seen what was available to me within a few runs. Um, and that grinding to unlock one more weapon that might appear on a run uh, was not gratifying. So I will say that I'm being pretty critical here, um, but I am interested to hear from other people who like roguelikes. Um, I think that mileage varies. I think different people like different things. Um, and I do think that if people want a low stakes, uh, relatively unchallenging uh, game that you can play whilst you have a YouTube video on the side, whilst you are talking to someone, whilst you're watching a movie, 
it's one of those low stakes games, almost like a phone game. You know, it's a game that you can play absentmindedly. It doesn't have voice acting, so you can listen to a podcast while you're playing it. It's just a little pixel toy. You know what I mean? Um, so if you like that kind of thing, um, and you do like, if you a person that has like a hundred hours in Hades or two hundred hours in Slay the Spire, and you just enjoy the loop, then this game might really hit for you. Um, I think for me personally. Um, I'm a bit picky on them. I do need there to be a certain balance between progress, meaningful feeling progress, um, and the gameplay itself. And I I think some games get it right. I think of Slay the Spire. I think of Hades. I think of Rogue Legacy 2. These are the crown jewels of the roguelike genre to me. I think the Backpack Hero is a competent entry in the genre that does not quite hit those heights. Perhaps that is an unfair standard to hold it to. It is certainly a good little game. It has a lot of charm. And I really like that indie developer story. Um, so while it maybe isn't the roguelike for me, it is a decent little roguelike. Um, that is my take on Backpack Hero. So, wow, what a big episode that was. We have talked about 14 upcoming games from the Game Awards. We have run through all of the winners, um, and then we have reviewed three games. So I hope that you enjoyed those reviews of Backpack Hero, of A Highland Song, and of Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. Um, that's it from me for this week. I will be back next week with another episode, as always. Not sure what it will be about. I'm hoping that it's time for those Goatee episodes to begin. So I'm talking to a few of the guests that I have planned for Games of the Year episodes. So it might be time to actually lean back a little and just enjoy the winter season um, and just talk about the year that was with some really interesting guests. I'm hoping to have on Brad Galloway. I'm hoping to have on Chris Becker, a.k.a. Super Nintendad. And I'm hoping to have on Blinkoom, um, a.k.a. Steve from the Polykill podcast. Um, and hopefully our old friend Kieran Daly can come back on as well. So lots of potential guests. I'm hoping to get all of those lined up and record a bunch of Games of the Year content for you um, to listen to across the next month. Also gives me a little bit of time to take my foot off the gas with playing a game a week to talk about. In the meantime, uh, feel free to reach out to me, of course. I always like to hear from listeners. I'd like to hear what you liked from the Game Awards, what you thought about the games that I've talked about this week. You can find me on Twitter, at Gaming in the Wild, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all of the places. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaminginthewild. Always appreciated when someone joins up, even if it's just for a dollar a month. Um, it's a, a nice show of support, so thanks very much to all the patrons. Um, and I'll be back next week with hopefully the first of the Games of the Year episode. So take care of yourselves and each other, and bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.